me, if you would, to the Gospel according to John. We are going to be in the 11th uh, chapter again this week. We're concluding our study in John chapter 11. We're going to consider verses 45 through 57. And just to recap us, uh, chapter 11 began with the death of Lazarus. And we saw that there was an overriding principle of Christ and an overriding principle thereby uh, for the believers in Christ that during times of pain, uh, times of illness, times of death, that Christ will be glorified in it and that all things are done to and for the glory of God. We considered Last week, as we saw that Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead at his word, we considered the truth that God has helped in the believer's life. We conclude that God can help in our present circumstances. And we can rest assured that he will ultimately be our help all the way to the end of the age. So this morning we're going to consider the response to Jesus' raising of Lazarus, and we're going to see this from the perspectives of believing Jewish witnesses, and at the same time, uh, we're going to uh, see the religious leaders of the day and their response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, we're going to begin our time uh, praying for God the Holy Spirit this morning to reveal His truth to us, to give us receptive ears and hearts to receive it. We'll then read the text, and then we'll divide the passage, making observations as we go. So let us pray. Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would reveal to us the truth of your word, that you would empower us with grace this morning to receive, to believe, and to live in a manner that is pleasing to you, Father. Help us, Lord, to embrace all that God is for us in Christ Jesus, and it is in his name that we pray. So let us look at our passage this morning, chapter 11. We will read four, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went out from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to the country 
from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the life-changing, eternal word of the Lord for us this morning. I want to remind us of some things that John has said in the outset in the prologue of his gospel in chapter 1. Again, to help us get context here. In chapter 1, John lays out who Jesus is. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And as we've been studying John's gospel to this point, Jesus' earthly ministry and his teaching has fleshed out the reality of what John proclaimed at the very beginning of his gospel. It has been fleshed out in front of us. We have seen it uh, come to fruition. The reality that John's claim is not just a claim of words but w- that he says in this prologue, but, but then he shows us. This is how this has fleshed itself out, that John has claimed in the prologue that the long-awaited Messiah has come. Water he turned into wine in chapter 2. Healed an invalid of 38 years in chapter 5. He fed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves uh, in chapter 6. Further in chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. In chapter 9, he opens the eyes of the blind. In In our last study, Jesus puts the final stamp on his messianic claim in raising Lazarus from the dead. So the evangelist here, John the, uh, the Apostle, has proclaimed and shown that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. This claim in John's Gospel was also the claim, as we saw last week and the week before, this was Martha and Mary's claim, that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God who had come into the world. Lazarus sisters claim this, and it is the claim of every one of us who are in this room who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That makes Jesus our Savior of the world, and He is the Savior who is to be embraced, or He's a threat. Jesus is either a Savior that we embrace, or He is a threat. He is a threat that you reject. And if you reject Jesus, it's who He is. It's clear who He is. He is the Word of God. He is God made flesh. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the only way to salvation. 
He is the light of men. He is the light in the dark place in the world that we live. Jesus is those things. He, and he is either Savior to you, or he is a threat to you that you reject to your own eternal damnation. Jesus is the Savior, I'm going to repeat this, that you are commanded to embrace, or he is a threat that you will reject to your eternal peril. Jesus is the Son of God coming to the world. And here's, I have a one-point message this morning. You know, I thought about this. Usually there's like several points and all that. And as I studied this, I kept coming back to the same point. I have one point. And, and here is this one point. Since Jesus is the Son of God who has come into the world and He is the Savior, He is the Christ, you must do something with it. You must do something with that reality. And the world must do something with that, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. Let us look at verses 45 through 48 just a little more closely and see what's going on here as we set the scene. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the evidence of God's work in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth cannot be denied by the Pharisees. They cannot deny that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw God work through him. At his command, Lazarus was raised from the dead. They saw it. They witnessed it. They were witnesses to this resurrection. They saw the power of God at work in Jesus Christ. And they could not deny, there was no way to deny that Jesus, that God was working through Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. They could not deny that. And the ultimate work of God has been witnessed by many of these Jewish people in, in Lazarus being raised from the dead, and it was at the command of Jesus, and a great number have believed in him that he was sent of God. But some see the work of Jesus as a threat that must be dealt with. So they gathered the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees to enlist the council of the Sanhedrin. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the Pharisees here, they were really a small faction. They had influence, but it was, it was little. But they had some influence on this Sanhedrin and they could not arrest Jesus by themselves. So they appeal to the Sanhedrin, to the council. And the Sanhedrin, they were a body of 70 men plus one, the high priest. So this was the highest judicial body allowed under Roman control uh, to rule. They, and they could rule in, in Jewish internal affairs. The Sanhedrin was the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branches all in one group. And the question they pose to this group is, what are we to do with Jesus? He has raised the dead to life. What will become 
of us if he is allowed to continue. If everyone believes in and follows Jesus, we will lose the temple as our center of our religious life. The Romans will remove our right to govern our Jewish eternal affairs, supposing that they might give authority to Jesus to rule. Instead, what are we to do with Jesus? When I pose that question, and every time I pose that question, I keep thinking about this one thing that R.C. Sproul often taught and often said, that when this is said, your moment of crisis has arrived. When I tell you that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of the living God, and you don't believe, you have entered into a moment of personal, eternal, soul-wrenching crises. You are at a crisis in that moment. If you're sitting here today, and Jesus is not the Lord of your life, your moment of crisis has arrived. Because we have proclaimed, and it is true, whether you believe it or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We sang it, we read it, we praised it. It's true. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you here this morning don't recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, then your moment of crisis has arrived. See, Jesus is the Logos. He is the mind. He is the thought, the Word of God made flesh. Jesus is the light of God come into the world. Jesus is the provision of God to eternal life. Jesus is the one and the only one who opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. Jesus is the only one who can save your soul from the justice of God that you so richly deserve. There are only two paths for any of us sitting in here this morning, and that is to repent and believe the gospel, and then it has been granted to you eternal life. Reject him, and all the judgments of God rest upon you. You see, your moment of crisis has arrived, and you must do something with Jesus. The inherited human condition brought on by our fallen state is on full display here in the Pharisees' question. What are we to do with Jesus? Jesus is a threat. That is what these Pharisees are saying. What are we to do with him? He is a threat. He's a threat to our way of life. You ever think about speaking about who Jesus is and he's a threat to your sin and he's a threat to your neighbor's sin? He's a threat when you claim Jesus. In the garden, in Genesis, the serpent, the devil himself, whispered in the ear of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he goes, shh, hey, autonomy is what you really want. You want autonomy. Don't you want to be free? See, listen to what the devil says in Genesis 3. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Eve, what you want is freedom. And you should have freedom from any external control or influence. This is what you want, Eve. Freedom. Freedom from external control. 
Freedom from any influence. You want autonomy. The devil would say, happiness, Eve, will come when you exercise your own right to self-government. You will be free from God's restraint. You will have self-directed moral independence from God. See, Jesus is a threat to the Pharisees' sense of autonomy. They think we will no longer be self-directed. We will no longer be self-directed. Our moral independence will be taken from us, is what they ask and say to the Sanhedrin. Our moral independence will be taken from us. Our right to rule and reign and self-direct us in all things religious will be taken from us. And what will happen to us? See, Jesus raises the dead, and if he's allowed to continue, people will go to him for moral guidance. People will go to him as the moral authority. What will happen to us? We will no longer have self-directed moral independence. People will go to Jesus to find the answers. Jesus will become the one who influences the people. And Rome will take away our center of religious life, believing that the people will want Jesus to be the center of worship. God forbid that Jesus would be the center of worship. Jesus is a threat. What will we do with Jesus? Next, let us listen to Caiaphas, the high priest, and his response to the Pharisees' crisis concerning Jesus. 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only uh, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The high priest was in a position that was intended to be a position that was held for life. But often, because of the way that they fought with one another, the high priest didn't last very long. Sometimes it would be uh, less than a year. Things were so volatile, they didn't last very long. But Caiaphas had been in this position for 18 years. And the Apostle John here says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And what he's saying here, what John is saying is that the high priest in the most historic year ever on the planet was Caiaphas. This critical, historical moment, it was Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. He was there that historic year of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And the high priest was often known to be curt and dismissive in his demeanor, and so he begins his response in that way, you know nothing at all. He would further intimate that while we have this semi-autonomous position, the way to maintain our position, Pharisees, is to offer up Jesus as a sacrifice for him to be a scapegoat for our people and for our nation. During that fateful year, though, you see, God used the sinful heart of Caiaphas to unwittingly announce the plan of God. He means it one way, and God means it another. He announces the plan of God. He thinks he's planning to provide a scapegoat for them to 
that they would keep their center of worship, that they would appease the Romans, that this sacrifice would then keep things under their control. What Caiaphas meant for the Jews' position is for nationalistic autonomy. God meant for his plan of redemption. Caiaphas announces that the sacrifice of Jesus would not only appease the Romans, but it would bring scattered Jews back to Jerusalem. So when he's talking about when it's talking about the scattered people of God, he's talking about the dysphoria, the people around, Jewish people around, and God is meaning it for something different, that both Jews and Gentiles will be brought in, all of the children of God, those who believe in Jesus will be brought together. But, but no, Caiaphas here thinks he's saying something specific, but God is saying more. Caiaphas is thinking, well, we'll just gather this. If we sacrifice one, then all of our Jewish brothers and sisters will get to hang on to what we've got, and... Not only that, that that will also unite and bring people, you know, other Jewish brothers and sisters from around, and they'll come in and be, be part of our group and we'll be stronger. God used Caiaphas' words to tell the world through John's gospel that Jesus' sacrificial death would bring Jews and Gentiles alike into the family of God. The center for worship would no longer be in the temple in Jerusalem, but would be centered on Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Caiaphas is making quite an announcement here. He pronounces also here that Jesus has been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. And the sentence will be carried out when it's politically expedient to do so. The later trials of Jesus are just a sham. The trial has already taken place. It took place right here. This was the the, the accusation, the charge, the conviction, the, the sentence was all laid out right here. And they're waiting to carry it out till it's expedient for them to do so. It was determined by the Sanhedrin. This is what we are doing. Jesus must be put to death. We must put down the threat. Jesus is the threat. We must put him down. And he is condemned to death in this moment. These future trials are nothing more but a kangaroo court. And remember, God once again in that court uses a man, Pilate, to speak the truth concerning Jesus. Pilate doesn't know what he's saying, but he says, I find no fault in him. And behold, the man. The witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus have one of two responses here. Many believe Jesus is doing the work of God, and many believe Jesus is a threat. And you know that if we proclaim Jesus in the world, he's a threat. Our government sees him as a threat, don't they? The governments of the world see Jesus Christ as a threat. Your neighbors see Jesus as a threat. Especially when you narrowly tell them that there is one way to salvation. That there is one truth. That there is one way to eternal life you have pronounced a threat to them. Because if you announce that, if there's one way and you can't get there, lest it's through Jesus, lest the Father draws you, lest your eyes be opened, you say that, then guess what? I no longer have autonomy. I don't have self-directed self-rule. I am no longer morally independent. And the nations around us hate Jesus. They hate Jesus. 
Because he's a threat to their authority, isn't he? Jesus is a threat to all world authorities. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, Psalm 2 says. The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is kind of the idea of what's going on here, right? That this Sanhedrin says, we set ourselves and we take counsel together to come against the Lord, to come against his anointed. We're coming against his anointed. Let's burst their bonds and cast the cords away from him, from us. They won't follow Jesus if we destroy him. They won't, they'll, they'll come back to us. They'll come back to having us be the center of everything. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God who come into the world. This truth is either embraced to eternal life or rejected unto eternal judgment. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat to Jewish autonomy. Jesus is a threat to Jewish nationalistic aspirations. And Jesus is a threat today. Jesus threatens freedom. Freedom from external control or influence. Jesus is a threat to humanistic, self-directed, moral independence from God. Jesus is a threat to your political ideology. All of them. Conservative, Democrat, whatever. I don't care what political party you tie to. Jesus Christ is a threat to your political ideology because he is the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. It is his economy and his government that rules. No matter what we think is going on, God reigns. We sang it. Our God reigns over the heavens. And over the earth, our God reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a threat. But Jesus is a threat to our idea of social justice too, isn't it? Because, because Jesus is a threat to human autonomy, Jesus is the justice of God. Jesus is the one who every tribe and every nation have to come to him to find the justice of God. Jesus is the one who unifies people. Jesus is the justice of God for every nation. Ending part in, in Revelation. Jesus says, For you were slain, and, your, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is social justice, real justice, the justice of God, justice of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a threat to government authority still today. But guess what? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. See, Jesus is either a threat or a savior to be embraced. Isn't it a comfort to know that no plan of God can be thwarted? That sinful men and the devil himself are in the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his will? It's a great comfort to me to know that even this sinful man, Caiaphas, announces the good news of God. He announces that Jesus will be the one who unites people to himself, to God. Verse 54. I've isolated this because Jesus here goes to isolate himself. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So not only is it true that God's plans will come about the way he plans to, but also, take comfort in this, brothers and sisters, that the plan will come about not a minute earlier, not a minute later, then God has foreordained for it to come to pass. Not a moment earlier, not a moment later. Our friend Eric Tucker spent exactly the number of minutes on earth that God had determined for him. Exactly the number he had determined. Not one minute more, not one minute less. My friend Eric's life was in the hands of Christ, in the sovereign God who holds everything who is still now holding our friend, who is rejoicing in the presence of his Lord and his Savior. Not only does God's plan come to fruition the way he plans it, but in the right time, in the time that he determines. So Jesus here breaks away from public ministry until he himself announces the time. In John 12, 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son to be glorified. No human court had jurisdiction over the Son of Man. Notice, they have pronounced it. They've pronounced his death. They've pronounced him guilty. They're going to stop him, they say. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus announces the time. No human court could hold him. Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God's plan comes about God's way and in God's time. I, myself, am very thankful that God's plans are greater than mine. That I can trust that his plan is good. It comes about when he says it will, no sooner, no later. And therefore, God is never surprised, right? He's not surprised. He's not shocked. Even Heather has often said this to me about when we talk about our sin, and we go before the Lord and we say, God, I cannot believe that I've done this once again. And she's like, we've never shocked him. We've never once surprised him. Yeah, let us move on here. 
uh, verse 55. So, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So every faithful Jewish person at this time would prepare themselves for Passover. They would do so a week ahead of time uh, through the rites of purification. And the people here, they're looking for Jesus. And they're, they're kind of saying here, do you think he'll come? Will he come knowing what is determined for him? If he is the promised one, surely he will come. But perhaps, because they have had so many pretenders in the past, people who have called themselves Savior and weren't, perhaps he's a pretender, like the others who have come before us. He'll vanish away, just like so many others. The debate is here. Jesus is the Christ. Is Jesus the one sent by God to bring the people of God to himself? Or is Jesus a threat? Even these people are contemplating this. Is Jesus the one sent by God to bring the people of God to himself? Or is Jesus a threat? A threat to our religious system? A threat to our national pride? That this has now been defeated. That Jesus has now been defeated by decree. Will Jesus fulfill what God has promised? This is the question. Will Jesus fulfill what God has promised? And I asked myself this week, are you, and for us, are you pinning your future hope on a political turnaround? If Jesus Christ is Lord, have we become a slave to his righteousness? Have you come to realize that autonomy is an illusion of freedom that has really been born is born of sin? Have you determined that dependence upon God and His righteousness has set you free? It has set you free, truly free, from the law of sin and death. Is your hope in this life anchored to the promise of God? And this promise right here. I want us to anchor ourselves on this promise. That Jesus is coming. That Jesus is coming soon. That Jesus is coming back. Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is a threat to autonomy. He is a threat to self-directed moral independence. Or for us, Jesus Christ is the means of grace. That we are grace-dependent. We are dependent upon the grace of God the Father. We are dependent upon God's grace to save us. We are dependent upon God's grace to sustain us until He comes again. And it is this grace that causes us to live at peace with God, knowing that we are still sinful creatures. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God, and He's coming soon. I want to leave us with Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works.
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, you might be questioning me and you say, Jeff, I know that you are a reformed guy and will you say all people are saved? Is that what this is saying? No. What I'm saying is that for anyone to be saved, of all the people that do get saved, that are ever going to get saved, the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Anyone who is saved must receive and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Reject Him. It's the one-point sermon. Reject Him to your own peril. Let's take a moment of silence. Oh, Father God, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You would fill in the gaps for us in our hearts and our minds and in our spirits. Those things that we didn't speak well, those things that we didn't understand well, we pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would fill in those places for us this morning. We ask, Lord, that your word take its full effect and that we embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior and that we uh, surrender ourselves to your grace, that we are dependent upon you, that our self directed moral independence we would repent from and we cling to your grace for our salvation lord we ask this in jesus name amen